gentle listener, and welcome to Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. This is a very special edition of the show, and by special, I do mean hopefully not terrible and unlistenable, because unfortunately, uh, this edition is uh, Ethan in a room, not with Michael, or with Scotch, as our uh, tradition with special episodes goes. Um, The story of this episode is that uh, Ethan, whose job it was to sort of keep keep the schedule on track as far as, you know, scheduling, letting Michael know enough in advance that uh, uh, we need a new recording by this date, so, you know, um, Michael had enough enough time to find a time to record in a timely manner um that sort of ethan ethan kind of dropped the ball on that combined with just uh both michael and ethan's um hectic uh summer summer schedules um michael as always has many more irons in the fire than ethan uh and um, all of that just added up uh, to not being able to get the two of us together um, in one or two rooms uh, at the same time to be able to uh, record together in sort of a timely manner. Uh, that said, um, I have decided to, I mean, in the interest of putting out something rather than nothing, um, I've, I've, uh, uh, opted to do sort of a solo special that I think hopefully will be interesting. Um, I don't know if it will be as long as our standard episodes because I really rely on Michael saying things that I can then interrupt, um, you know, to sort of pad out the, the timing on this these episodes. So I don't know if how long this episode will be. Um, it may be on the shorter side, it may be not that, uh, Michael and Ethan constantly at war with each other dynamic that you, you know, look for, um, but hopefully it will be interesting, and, um, I, I do think the topic is relevant if you've been sort of tracking a lot of the, the works and the, the general themes, um, of this podcast. Um... I am to, you know, at least sort of preserve some sense of, of decorum and, uh, uh, you know, regularity, even while we're throwing so many curveballs at our, at our patient listeners. Um, I am, you know, drinking a beverage, um, for, for this recording. I'm drinking the Michael Collins, The Prediction Irish Whiskey. Now, this is an Irish whiskey that my uh, brother recently um, found out about and then wanted to... He came on on a visit from where he lives out of state, and um, he wanted to bring me a bottle of it because it's somewhat hard to find, but he thought it was very delicious, and um, not going to lie, I've had some before the recording of this, um, and... I do tend to agree with him. Um, so it's, apparently this is one of those, um, this, this whiskey is one of the, the many, many, uh, whiskeys that went 
sort of defunct for a while as a direct result of prohibition. Um, I don't have the numbers like in front of me, but um, basically pre-prohibition, uh, the Irish whiskey uh, industry was really, really dependent on American sales. Like it was mostly an export industry in America. Uh, people in the United States bought most of it. So when Prohibition passed um, in um, the beginning of the, the 1920s, uh, the, you know, obviously the bottom dropped out of that market. And even as far as like smuggling and stuff goes, like I think some Canadian distilleries were able to to somewhat survive on, you know, technically illegal smuggling operations. But uh, when you can smuggle in from Canada, there's less incentive to smuggle in from Ireland. Obviously, a lot more, a lot more trouble, a lot more uh, uh, expense, a lot more risk. So even that, like, didn't help them survive. So again, I was starting to say I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I know that the the number of distilleries in Ireland decreased dramatically. Like it went from maybe in the triple digits down to like the single digits. Um, I don't know if I have this correct. I want to say maybe Bushmills and Jameson were the only two distilleries making Irish whiskey for a while. Uh, if not, it was not very much more than that. Um, much more recently, the Irish whiskey industry has uh, um, had sort of a, a renaissance, almost a, a rebirth. Um, and there are continually growing. There are a lot more um, uh, makers of Irish whiskey uh, once again, and um, I think this this particular whiskey is like owned by an American corporation. You have all those vagaries of corporate corporate structures with companies owning companies owning companies. You know, um, so I don't know where all the chips sort of fall on that at this point but um this is supposedly a pre-prohibition irish whiskey uh that was lost and has now been found so that's pretty exciting and you know how much of that is is true versus how much of that is marketing um it is certainly i find a good whiskey so uh there's your little little drinks talk at the top um now i'd like to pour a glass not follow any rules as we are, you know, even breaking the basic rule that Michael needs to be here. Um, and get into uh, the topic I would like to discuss today. Um, and that topic is the uh, the tale of Genji. Um, now, the reason I said before that I think this this you know topic would be of interest to people tracking you know, sort of some of the ongoing discussions and, and themes of the show is that, I guess, two reasons. One of them is we sometimes talk about, uh, you know, the, the question of what is the earliest novel, right? Now, this is one of those questions that's much more interesting as a question than as a sort of definitive conclusion, I guess you could say, um, just in the sense that, like, you know, uh, you'll, you'll never find an answer, right? Like everyone, you know, a lot of people have their, their sort of, uh, uh, pet theories or pet answers. You know, there are, there are 
Don Quixote stands, people who think that's that book is the first novel. There's Gargantuan Pantagruel stands. There's um, uh, stands for the, Depo- the, the Boccaccio's Decameron. Tried to say Boccaccio and Decameron at the same time. That didn't work. Um, you know, and there are other uh, uh, other you know contenders. I guess you could say. Um, the uh, uh, there's a man named Pavel who wrote a book called The Lives of the Novel that has come up on our podcast before um, in various connections. Um, and whereas some other critics, I think including Milan Kundera, um, place the novel's development as like as a specific genre, you know, they place it post Renaissance, so 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, somewhere in there. Not 1800. People pretty much agree that the novel was in existence by the 1800s, but um, Pavel, you know, dates it as far back as certain ancient Greek works and ancient Roman works. He says that, you know, there are at least proto-novels from the classical world that have as much right to be called novels as, say, Don Quixote does, or or Gargantuan Pantagruel does do. Um, So you know again like there's there's uh many and various um uh theories and and competing um contenders and so forth um but one thing that's interesting to me is that i've never seen i've never seen any asian contenders uh sort of brought up in these discussions um now there may be reasons for that um when someone like Pavel or Milan Kundera or even uh um the the book uh the novel a biography by Michael Schmidt that that Michael and I reference fairly frequently when books like that are talking about the novel they are often their authors are certainly trained look at the novel as a western genre um that's not to say nobody outside of the west can ever write a novel uh certainly not you know as the novel becomes a global genre but that like the way that we are talking about the novel and the sort of history and 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 uh uh descent of it as a form we're talking about it in the West. If there's such a thing as an Asian novel, a lot of these people would probably say it's something else. It has different intellectual roots, um, different artistic roots, and has to be talked about uh, very differently. You know, I and again, this is just a, a difference in approach, maybe even a difference in positioning in time here in the, you know, what is technically the third decade of the 21st century um the novel certainly seems like a very global phenomenon um and it's hard to ignore the fact that for example chinese literature has uh what are called its its four great novels uh, the romance of the three kingdoms is or the romance of three kingdoms is probably the most famous one um there's a, a total war battlefield you know grand strategy computer game uh named after that um 
but on my shelf right now I have a translation of the book The Water Margin, which is another of these these four grade novels, and I haven't read any of those personally, but like as far as I can, you know, as far as anything I've read about them, they seem like uh at least as novelistic as Don Quixote, if not, you know, some somewhat later novels. Um so uh and so again the other reason that uh the tale of genji that i'm slowly groping my way towards talking about that it might be interesting um to folks who have sort of kept up with our our uh uh through lines and 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 works that we've read um is that it came up in michael and my discussion of um the book i am a cat which was armando book for last year as this podcast is is coming out for uh 2021 um i am a cat of course a japanese novel from the early 20th century pre world war one let alone pre-world war two um and it's a it's sort of a multi-volume novel about nothing in very much the tradition of tristram shandy a, a book which it name checks and part of of michael's and my discussion there was you know uh um, the, uh, the author of I Am a Cat had been educated in the West and certainly was familiar with Western novels. Again, name checks, Tristram Shandy, among others. Um, so, you know, sort of part of our discussion was, uh, about the idea of the world novel and, um, do we see this in a tradition with other Asian literature or in a Western tradition or indeed both? Um, and, uh, because of who I am as a person, I, I personally would prefer to lean in the direction of both. But at the time, Michael and I kind of agreed that, you know, uh, uh, we knew more, much more about the, the sort of Western tradition, the European and American based tradition. And so we talked about it in that light, just because that's what we had any leg to stand on rather than no leg to stand on. Um, but I think I've mentioned uh, in a few recent episodes, mentioned at least offhandedly, that I've spent the last, um, it will be slightly over a year, uh, only reading big books. That is, I got to a, a point where uh, I had so many very long books that I kept meaning to read and not reading because it's, you know as far as the the little endorphin rush of of finishing something it feels better to read you know three uh small books instead of one big book so i just picked out um a big book to read each month this year um and uh a book the that book for a couple months ago as i'm recording this was the tale of genji um it was i i think i bought the copy that i have at a uh library book sale when i was in college in mankato minnesota so it had been with me sitting on various various shelves uh making various moves with me for um at least a decade probably slightly more uh before i managed to get around to it um and so uh 
what occurred to me as I did finally get around to it, as I did start reading it, um, was that if you are going to uh, sort of broaden the scope and, and not just, you know, um, uh, oh, there's a, there's a philosophy term, but um, if you're not going to just inherently define the novel as a Western uh, uh, genre or define the Western novel as a Western genre, if you're going to throw sort of the um, the gates open to contenders from all over the world for first novel, for earliest novel, um, I think based on some of the other contenders that exist, I came to think that the tale of Genji um, is inherently a contender in in the sense of it being early and it being very novel like, very much like um, a novel that uh, uh, you know something that would be written five hundred or indeed eight hundred years later, um, and being something that's more like that than it is like, you know, other things that were being written, uh, at its time, at least certainly in, in Western Europe. Um, the, uh, the Chinese novels that I mentioned earlier, um, are the, the four great works of Chinese literature, four great Chinese classics. I've heard them called all of those things. I don't know if there's one correct term or most correct term. Anyway, those are all medieval in Western terms. Like, those are all from the Middle Ages. Um, so that's earlier than most of the, the you know, most popular contenders for um, for first novel. Uh, the Tale of Genji is uh, from the 11th century. So so roughly a thousand, you know, what, what Westerners would call AD a thousand, right? Um, and that is earlier than... Almost any contender for first novel in the West that's not from the classical world, like Thomas Pavel would have it. Um, it's it's earlier than, uh, uh, you know, it's it's certainly earlier than Gargantuan Pantagruel, which is itself earlier than Don Quixote. It's certainly earlier than the Decameron, even. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's again compared to to Western terms. If you're excluding the classical world, it's very early, um, and it does a lot of the things that uh, a novel does, like the the developed you know nineteenth century well made novel. It does a lot of those things. I mean, even even techniques that seem very twentieth century to me. Um, and so to kind of kind of prove all of that as much as can be proven my my proposal here was to read one or two excerpts from the tale of genji uh and kind of do some do a bit of close reading to sort of make my case for uh what i've just said you know this is obviously uh i think of this as part of a a conversation as part of a a you know a friendly debate if you want to if you want to call it that um meaning that i'm not sort of 
this is not a hill I'm willing to die on. I'm certainly willing to hear other opinions, but um, right now I have a microphone and you don't, so you're going to hear mine. Um, unless you decide to turn this podcast off, which, you know, is, is obviously uh, an option. Um, right, so that said, uh, in a second I'm going to read read this translation, but I first want to introduce a little bit more about the tale of Genji. Um and also about the translation that I'm using. Um, so, Tale of Genji, written originally in the 11th century. And if you look up Tale of Genji at, at a library, if you find it at a, at a bookstore where we're alphabetizing things by name, the name you will usually see associated with it is Morasaki Shikibu. So, according to the introduction, the, tra- the translation that I'm... That I, uh, read most of and i'll expand on that uh before we uh before we uh end here is a translation from the 19 into english from the 1970s by uh uh one edward g seiden sticker um there are three major translations into english uh and seiden stickers is uh considered an extremely valid one there's one earlier one that i think is less um supposed to be less faithful and there's a later one that's uh, sounds like it's maybe more faithful but it's also very academic so it's uh uh sort of cranking up the faithfulness to the point of not worrying about readability or or ease of ease of access so much so i think side and stickers translation is considered to be kind of right in the middle uh shikibu is related to an office held by the author's father and Morisaki probably derives from a uh, a name of a character in the book. So, in other words, you know, so little was known about this author. Who we we do know that she was female, um, but so little is known about her actual identity that um, the sort of designation of of her name has just been sort of cobbled together from um, certain other uh sources um or certain other you know it, it's not like if 500 years from now you know someone uh knew my work and they knew it as someone by ethan bartlett it was like if they knew my work as uh you know an author who was named after my grandfather's first name in the town i was born in or something like um it's an identi- a, a designation that conceals as much as it reveals and um at least according to side and sticker there are other interpretations of where this name came from but like the author is very mysterious um again we know she was a, a lady at court uh um at the time this was written so she was very highborn high class probably uh quite well educated and my extrapolation i haven't read this anywhere but my extrapolation is just that she was probably pretty bored she was probably a very smart person in a world where women were not sort of given a lot to do even if they were smart and capable so um that's the the reason that we have this this work from her that's you know in my edition which is it's it's a soft cover, but the the pages are very large. Like it's it's shaped more like a a standard hardcover, and it's eleven hundred pages long. So my just little you know head fan theory, I guess, is just that this is a woman who was 
very smart and very bored and not having anything better to do uh produced a classic of japanese literature um for her own amusement like that's that's again how it comes off this is very much uh extrapolation with little little hard proof but okay um so uh, then the uh the genji um was uh no one knows if first of all if everything that we have is everything that there was and second of all if everything that there was was all written by whoever murasaki shikibu actually was um there's there's evidence that you know other people copyists of this manuscript added their own chapters or episodes um there's also evidence that there's there's missing parts like what has come down to us is not the whole thing um anyone who is familiar with you know how stuff gets transmitted to us from the ancient world in the middle ages will not be at all surprised by that um you know in a in a world before especially certainly before the printing press and you know also before sort of modern means of preservation and 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 uh technological interventions and so forth like the farther back out of the modern world you go the the more easy it is to lose entire manuscripts or parts of manuscripts just to accident or um you know happenstance other things like that um so that said uh we uh according to again side and sticker um what we do have is a really good approximation of what the original genji was that he claims that the um it, what interpolations might be present don't really alter the the story or the themes as a whole and that what we've lost we can mostly extrapolate and at least make up you know, f sort of understand as much as we can about what might have been lost without having it. Um, so he's pretty sunny about all of that. Okay, the last thing I want to say before I go in and just read a couple excerpts from this book um, is that, I, again, I'm going to do some close reading after that, and I'm fully aware that this is a work in translation and that I don't I know very little about, um, you know, Japanese literature as a whole. If this were a work in translation from French, I would know a lot more. Even though I don't read French fluently, I would know a lot more about the culture that that produced it and some of the assumptions that the that might be translator things versus author things, stuff like that. I don't know any of that for a work translated from you know, a medieval form of Japanese. Um, so it's always possible that some of what I extrapolate from the, uh, um, you know, from close reading might be sight and sticker and, and him making choices to sort of put the story into a, a framework or whatever that a, a Western audience might find more recognizable, um, preserving the spirit rather than the letter. But at the same time, um, from my research, this is considered a very faithful and very good translation. And if it is, you know, even like if 60% of what I've gotten out of this, uh, um, you know, if 60% if, if of what I'm going to say in close reading is like 
not just that if it's if it's back in the original i think my thesis still holds okay so that said uh i'm going to first read a decent chunk um from the very beginning uh uh of this this book um starting on page starting on page 11 um now this is a scene in the emperor's court when uh genji is very young this scene is written from the perspective of the emperor um this these these first chapter or two kind of act like a a prologue situation kind of situating genji before he sort of takes over as the real hero of the story there's there's other context that i could give but um i don't i don't think it matters sort of for our purposes here um all right so starting on page 11 this will go into page 12 of the the one volume side and sticker translation he meaning the emperor listened attentively as miobo miobu described the scene she had found so affecting he took up the letter she had brought brought from the grandmother I am so awed by this august message that I would run away and hide, and so violent are the emotions it gives rise to, that I scarcely know what to say. The tree that gave them shelter has withered and died, one fears for the plight of the haggy shoots beneath. A strange way to put the matter, thought the emperor, but the lady must still be dazed with grief. He chose to overlook the suggestion that he himself could not help the child. He sought to hide his sorrow, not wanting these women to see him in such poor control of himself. But it was no use. He reviewed his memories over and over again from his earliest days with the dead lady. He had scarcely been able to bear a moment away from her while she lived. How strange that he had been able to survive the days and months since on memories alone. He had hoped to reward the grandmother's sturdy devotion, and his hopes had come to nothing. Well, he sighed, she may look forward to having her day if she will only live to see the boy grown up. Looking at the keepsakes Miobu had brought back, he thought what a comfort it would be if some wizard were to bring him, like that Chinese emperor, a comb from the world where his lost love was dwelling. He whispered, And will no wizard search her out for me, that even he may tell me where she is? There are limits to the powers of the most gifted artist. The Chinese lady in the paintings did not have the luster of life. Yang Kui Fei was said to have resembled the lotus of the sublime pond, the willows of the timeless hall. No doubt she was very beautiful in her Chinese finery. When he tried to remember the quiet charm of his lost lady, he found that there was no color of flower, no song of bird to summon her up. Morning and night, over and over again, they had repeated to each other the lines from the song of everlasting sorrow. In the sky as birds that share a wing, on earth as trees that share a branch. It had been their vow, and the shortness of her life had made it an empty dream. Everything, the moaning of the wind, the humming of autumn insects, added to the sadness. But in the apartments of the Kokiden lady, matters were different. It had been some time since she had last waited upon the emperor. The moonlight being so beautiful, she saw no reason not to have music deep into the night. The emperor muttered something about the bad taste of such a performance at such a time, and those who saw his distress, agree distress agreed that it was an unnecessary injury. Kokoden was of an arrogant and intractable nature, and her behavior suggested that to her the emperor's grief was of no importance. The moon set. The wicks and the lamps had been trimmed more than once, and presently the oil was gone. Still, he showed no sign of retiring. 
His mind on the boy and the old lady, he jotted down a verse. Tears dim the moon even here above the clouds. Dim must it be in that lodging among the reeds. Calls outside told him that the guard was being changed. It would be one or two in the morning. People would think his behavior strange indeed. He withdrew at length to his bedchamber. Uh, and I've stopped sort of in the middle of a paragraph there. I did go on to the very start of page 13. Um, hopefully if uh, the site and sticker estate hears the extent to which I've quoted, they will uh, allow me fair use in terms of education and criticism. Um, I just want to quote one other very short passage um, and then sort of talk about both passages um, after that. So this is from much later from page 168. Uh, and again, I, I could give you some context here. Maybe I should, but I, I think this is self-contained enough for what I want to talk about. Usually so haughty and forbidding, she now gazed up at him with languid eyes that were presently filled with tears. How could he fail to be moved? This violent weeping, he thought, would be for her parents, soon to be left behind, and perhaps at this last leave-taking for him, too. Okay, so there were a couple things that kind of blew my mind when I first encountered both these passages and many other passages. There's a lot of examples I could have pulled of what I'm talking about, but these were the two that, excuse me, sort of kept, stayed with me and, um, uh, yeah, you know, sort of, uh, just picking two rather than seven. These were the two that seemed, um, seemed most, uh, most interesting to pick, I guess. Anyway. Okay, so the first thing I want to point out from that first long passage, actually, a couple things I probably should have said before going into these passages. A, any uh, Chinese or Japanese listeners, please forgive me for uh, my pronunciation of names. I'm sure it's bad. I've done my best, but I'm sure I've messed up. Um, secondly, uh, a few times in the, the first long passage that I read uh four times total um the what had been sort of a standard prose translation breaks and there's sort of a a couplet in the middle of of the page formatted like poetry um and i believe explicitly meant as poetry um in one of those places it, you know it's you're cued for it but because uh it's quoting this this line that the the emperor and his lover used to quote each other um but sometimes they just sort of break into it sort of like it's part of their dialogue and i don't know if it was standard practice at the you know japanese court in the 11th century to just sort of have poetry locked and loaded memorized to to go um you know and to just be able to quote it like that like the japanese court would court would not be the only place in world history where that sort of thing was true. Um, I don't know if it's that or if it's a literary convention along the lines of having people break into song in musicals and everybody just considers that normal, right? Um, it, it could be either of those, could be a little both. Uh, but, it, it, you know, that's, that's not unheard of in Western literature, especially older literature. Uh, if you read, you know, novels and other long-form 
uh, works from especially like the 17th and 18th century, a little bit in the 19th century. You know, you'll have you'll have that happen where uh, someone's just doing a monologue or something, and then in the middle of it, they just broke break into like a quatrain from you know William Blake or something. Like it it happens. It's sort of a literary convention. I didn't try to highlight it too much just to not break the flow of the quotations, but um, if something sounded like weirdly poetic or weirdly sort of formalized, uh, there may be, that may be part of why. Okay. Um, so w- one thing that jumped out at me from that, from that first longer passage that I read is how much interiority there is in this book. Um, interiority is something in, in fiction. It's basically either inner monologue or simply the idea of, you know, a character having a, an inner life where he or she, you know, talks to themselves or, or has sort of a dialogue with themselves or whatever. Um, Harold Bloom in his seminal book about Shakespeare, which is called Shakespeare, the invention of the human and has come up before on this podcast, he more or less gives credit for, to Shakespeare for putting this into world literature or at least Western literature. Um, he claims that before Shakespeare, at least in the West, characters were external characters. They were they were masks, you know, going back to Greek theater. Um, that there was no such thing as like internal monologue until Shakespeare and his characters' great soliloquies. Um, maybe I've mis- misunderstood or misinterpreted Harold Bloom, but you know, if you if you look at Don Quixote, for example, there's like. There's bits where Cervantes seems to be getting at interiority. He certainly suggests sort of subconscious motives, but there's no... If I remember right from my last reading of Don Quixote, or for both my readings, like, there's no real internal monologue to the Shakespearean extent or to this extent, where, um, you know, again, you just straight up have a strange way to put the matter, thought the emperor, but the lady must still be dazed with grief. He chose to overlook the suggestion that he himself could not help the child. So this is like just very much interiority, right? And most of this passage it just takes place inside the emperor's head. It's mostly his thoughts, his opinions, his analyses. There's very little external action. And if a Western novel had done this in the 11th century, like if, say, we were to, you know, un- unbury some library in France that had some author you know, uh, who had interiority to this extent um, within a larger, you know, uh, story narrative. Like, if that were to happen tomorrow, it would blow a lot of minds and it would probably get declared the first true novel. Like, it would be revolutionary. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, uh, that's one thing. Um uh, the other, uh, another thing that's similar that struck me a couple times, um, both in the the long passage I read and especially in that that last little passage that uh, was from somewhat later, is like what we're bordering on here, or maybe even just doing, is something called free indirect discourse. Um, if you've ever taken like a college level English class, you've probably at least heard that term. Certainly, if you've taken you know more advanced English classes. Um, or grad level classes, free indirect discourse often gets credited to Flaubert as as its inventor, and it's like, what probably 
even to this day, probably 90 plus percent of fiction novels written, at least in English, use free indirect discourse to some extent. Some of them use it almost to the exclusion or of any other technique. Um, that may be a little overstated, but basically free indirect discourse is when you have, you, you break out of the whole, like, reporting someone's thoughts like dialogue and you go into a much more subtle thing where you because you're in you're behind one particular character's eyes you just sort of report the world as that character sees it and it's a much it's a much subtler way um it's a um in a sense it's sort of the the uh, uh kiss and cousin of um stream of consciousness but it's like modified stream of consciousness in the sense that basically it frees the writer to use both sort of objective things that are in the world and interior thoughts about those things and to combine them in sort of a seamless way so an example of what i'm talking about um is uh uh this paragraph there are limits to the powers of the most gifted artist the Chinese lady in the paintings did not have the luster of life. So those are some very objective sounding sentences, but because of the context we're in, where we're in the emperor's sort of internal monologue, those sentences are given, uh, they're, they're just given as fact because they're seen from behind his eyes. Um, so they're facts to him, in other words, or they're his, his uh, how the facts strike him. Um, and again, there are a lot of passages in this, uh, uh, novel that do this. Um, so again, that, that later passage, a very short passage that I read, usually so haughty and forbidding, she now gave, gazed up at him with languid eyes that were presently filled with tears. So again, that's, that's pretty objective. That's just a description of a character. How could he fail to be moved? Um, so that's, that's like a good example of free indirect discourse. So we've got because you know those those two sentences are in the same paragraph. They're they're thoughts that follow each other, um, but again, that second sentence, how could he fail to be moved? That's from within the viewpoint character's sort of consciousness. Um, well, it's written as sort of a much more objective sounding thing. Um, now, again, any literary scholars who are listening to this show, I may be doing a completely terrible job of. Uh, defining and describing free and direct discourse please feel free to direct your angry emails to uh michael's email address um and then he will tell me in a in a way that my emotions can sort of uh, uh handle um yeah so uh the only the other thing i wanted to point out from these passages uh is the use of details again going back to that first first long passage i read Everything, the moaning of the wind, the humming of autumn insects, added to the sadness. Like, um, that's a, uh, what am I trying to say? It's, it's a use of detail that, again, I think a lot of Western writers don't get to detail at that level in some ways until Dickens. Um, you know, there may be some earlier authors, but it's very Dickensian. And that's not the only passage. Uh, I, I could have found other passages where there's entire paragraphs that are just like that. Just really descriptive 
a lot of it's nature imagery, but or imagery descriptive of a scene of people sort of taking tea or playing instruments out in nature, uh, things like that. And they're all, um, uh, they, again, they're very Dickensian. Like they, they remind me of no one so much as Charles Dickens. They're very well, maybe writers who started doing description at that level before Dickens. I haven't done the, the legwork to back up that claim, but, but it's very, it feels like a 19th century novel in the West. And again, it's from 800 years before that. So I, I just find that really fascinating. Um, we are, I said this might be a short episode, and here I have talked uh, more than I thought I had in me, but I do want to, I do want to wrap it up and not, you know, ramble in your ears for um, an unwelcome amount of time. Uh, but just as a couple other comments about the novelistic nature of this book. So I've, I've looked at some of the details, but you know, now the the debate about what's the first novel also goes to sort of big picture things, structure, um, you know, story. Like a lot of earlier novels, there's a novel called The Adventures of Gil Blas that sometimes gets gets uh, set up as a contender, or even a slightly later one, The Adventures of is it The Adventures of no the anyway the book Tom Jones. It has a longer title, and I'm I'm blanking on. Uh, exactly how it goes but uh by henry fielding which is an 18th century book you know it's it's considered somewhat uh later but even that one as well as don quixote and some of the earlier ones um there's a distinction between like picaresque works and novels picaresque works are often very long but they're episodic so you have 800 pages but it's almost it's sort of like the the reading version of like a sitcom from the 90s or or a medical drama from the 90s like everything kind of resets you know every 50 pages and it's like the whole thing never happened except it's the same character that everybody likes or the same set of characters and it's considered that's considered less sophisticated and less developed than later when you have um you know i just finished david copperfield by dickens and you have there a 900 page novel that you know stuff from the first chapter or two isn't resolved until the very end or more or less the very end and you have you have much more longer through lines um well genji very much has the latter genji is very much a continuous story that um again yeah stuff that happens in chapter one uh does end up you know affecting chapter 45 or whatever like it it's it is very unified in that way um the only thing about its structure that might you know be a point against it in the imaginary tally we're keeping of of whether this is the first novel would be the fact that it just kind of ends and in fact uh the i read i think i just this is just from wikipedia but um if wikipedia is to be believed the three main English translators of this novel had three different opinions about the ending. I forget who was which, but one of them thought the ending we have was the intended ending. Um, another one thought that there was an intended ending, but it's been lost. So um, we have, you know, not quite the, the full structure, but there was a, a full structure, a full plan in place. And the third one just thought that Murasaki Shikibu would continue just adding new chapters to the tale of Genji until 
she died. Like, this, there was never an intention for there to be a grand sort of Aristotelian climax or anything like that, um, that it was just going to be sort of ongoing. Um, part of the evidence, well, I was about to say a spoiler, and I, just in case anyone listening does want to read this book and doesn't want it spoiled, I won't say that, and I didn't play fair by giving you a chance to stop and read this book, as Michael and I normally do for our, our main uh, lines. So, anyway... Um, there's, there's various evidence for all three of those opinions. Um, I mentioned earlier, I didn't quite finish this book. I think I got to about a hundred pages out and I had just lost, like, I, I loved reading it up till that point, but at a certain point it just became a slog and I was more interested in reading other things and I just wanted to be done. And, uh, at a hundred pages out, I just started skimming pretty egregiously. Um, cause I did want to see how some of these plot lines were tied up if they were. Um, but when I read, it was only after I skimmed my way to the end that I, I read this about the three authors. So, uh, I concluded from that, that you just have to find a jumping off point with this book. So I didn't feel too bad. Now, no one, uh, go ahead and look into like, try to parse the logic of what I just said, because like, it, it makes perfect sense. And I don't, it, no one needs to think about it too hard. And frankly, if you do, uh, don't tell me. <laughs> um, unless you agree with me, in which case, fine. Uh, yeah, so, um, you know, again, Genji, Genji kind of doesn't have the full well-made Aristotelian incline that, um, you know, later, especially 19th century well-made novels would try to achieve. But, like, short of that, and com in comparison with the other sort of novels or proto-novels that get... Uh, get talked about as as possible you know the first novel novels i feel like genji really puts up a good a good argument for itself um milan kundera famously defined the novel as embodying ambiguities which um this novel certainly does i mean as i said before i'm not super well read in japanese literature even in translation but um, from what I can tell, like the Japanese literary tradition has always very much like been very comfortable with ambiguity, possibly more so than Western literature. So that shouldn't be surprising, but there's definitely a lot of ambiguity as far as a lot of the themes go between, you know, society and court life and authority and, um, also romance and the duty one, one owes to one's, uh, both lovers and offspring. Like there's a lot of just you know, contradictions and, and imbalance and, or balance. I don't know, just a lot of ambiguity built in there. Um, um, I've been slowly working through an open Yale course about Cervantes' Don Quixote, um, a, a series of lectures by Professor Roberto Gonzalez Echevarria, I believe. Um, again, apologies to any uh, Spanish speakers. I'm no better with Spanish pronunciation than I am with Japanese, but, um, uh, uh Professor, uh, Echeverria, um, he uses as his definition to make Don Quixote the first novel, he uses, uh, which he gets, I know, from some 20th century literary critic, and I cannot remember, it might be, it might be, um, Harold Bloom, or Bloom might have been quoting someone else. I don't know. 
But it's, it's one that you that you'll find, which is that Don Quixote is the first character in literature who is sort of out of tune with his environment, or is is sort of against his environment. So you know the the setting and the environment don't, or the rather the setting and the main character are out of harmony with each other, and um, uh, Echeverria argues that that's. A, the first time in literature that this has happened, and that is what creates sort of the embodiment of ambiguity that, that Kundera talks about, and that, again, Don Quixote is the first uh, work to achieve this. Um, and, see, I again, I don't know if this is in the, in the pro column or the con column for Genji, because Genji, the main character of this book, is very much sort of a part of this noble world that that the book is set in but he is constantly sort of at war with it like a, a through line is is just the idea that he in he thinks it's his duty to stay at court um and sort of do a do a job there but what he really wants to do is retire into like the the um sparsely populated countryside and become an ascetic hermit like become a a contemplative monk and so he's always sort of you know at war with himself and and his and his sort of culture that he finds himself in so i would argue that even on that level um genji really uh uh fulfills the the criteria for um being at least again a contender for the uh uh the first ever true novel um that is going to be all the all the time I have. Um, t please get in touch. Tell me what you think, whether you read Genji or not. But especially if you do read Genji, if you think I'm very right, if you think I'm very wrong, if you think anything in between, um, anyone who knows Japanese literature or knows uh, knows this work specifically, sort of from a an academic you know standpoint like i would especially love to hear from from you um and again don't be afraid to tell michael that he allowed me to uh get this very wrong um really be as sort of profane and, and sweary as you'd like with that uh and then he'll he'll tell me if he thinks i can you know if he thinks i can handle it um so if you've made it this far in this very uh out of the ordinary uh um edition of michael and ethan in a room with scotch if you made it this far thank you for uh listening to my ramblings um thank you for uh you know uh uh paying attention um yeah uh join us next time uh we will either have we'll be starting on gargantua and panagruel next time in one way or another i promise um if i get my stuff together in time we will maybe have an episode of context for gnp or we may just leap into the discussion and sort of sprinkle the context stuff uh throughout not sure um but it'll be fun either way i promise um 
So, yeah, uh, if you do want to get in touch and tell me I was deeply wrong about both my pronunciations and interpretation regarding the Tale of Genji, um, you can go to tapestryradio.org slash scotchcast. Um, if you put scotch talk in the subject line of your, or rather, sorry, go to the contact section of tapestryradio.org, put scotch talk in the subject line so we know it's, it's for us. Um, we are at Room with Scotch on Twitter. Um, you can join us in the Tapestry Radio Tap House on Facebook. If you request to join, we will let you in unless you're uh, the abstract embodiment of ambiguity. Um, if you want us to do your English homework badly and so that you uh, potentially get hauled off to plagiarism jail, you can go to the form that's at tapestryradio.org scotchcast. And if you like this, uh, program. Check out our other programs. There's Intermission, our audio drama podcast, Us Play Fiasco, our P- Fiasco uh, improv RPG podcast. Uh, there's Freddy Goes to a Podcast, another podcast about books, this one being about three grown men who are reading through the Freddy the Pig children's novel series. And there's Pokemon Rollout, our Pokemon United tabletop actual play RPG podcast. I think I left out a word from that, but Michael's not here to correct me, so too bad. Um... Yeah, again, thank you for listening, and just remember, it's our party, and we will cry if the beautiful nature details make us. Thanks, bye! Obscurantism and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. Gentle listener. listener. Obviated objects of oblivion. Obambulating about. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. Offered unto you. In the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org. From From our our fancy fancy to to yours. yours.